What a wonderful story. We've heard it countless times growing up. And this is how I want to digest this wonderful feast. Um, we'll look at it in three parts. The king, the three, and the sun, which is aptly the title. The king, the three, and the sun. Well, the king, well, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and Babylon is on top of the world. Remember that they had captured Judah and exiled a bunch of them, especially the nobles and the royal families of Judah. And it was part of their resettlement policy. They would take the best of the best, the brightest, and they would reprogram them. They would take them into Babylon and institutionalize them, if you will, to become servants of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, in doing all this, he might have felt mighty, but he was troubled by a dream. In Daniel 2, he had a dream of an image, an image of gold, of silver, of bronze, and iron, and iron and clay. And he was troubled to know what this dream meant. And so he ordered his servants, ordered his royal council, if you will, the intelligence council to reveal this mystery. And Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah appealed to God. They prayed and they asked God to reveal this mystery to them so they can tell Nebuchadnezzar what this dream meant. And it was done so. God revealed it to them. And so Daniel sought the audience of Nebuchadnezzar and told him the dream. And he said to Nebuchadnezzar, God of heaven has given you the kingdom. And at the moment, you are the head of gold. You rule over them all. And after you will be three other kingdoms, lesser kingdoms. But all these kingdoms will be struck by a rock. All the kingdoms of the world, in fact, will be destroyed by this rock and all the kingdoms shall turn into chaff and will be blown away by the wind, never to be seen. And this rock will become the only remaining kingdom standing forever with no end. And Daniel said that this dream is certain and the interpretation sure. And when Daniel revealed this to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar responds by falling on his face and paying homage, it says in the ESV, literally worshipping Daniel. He worshipped Daniel, saying, Truly, your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And this word for worship, pay homage, occurs once in Daniel 2, but in Daniel 3, which we just read, it occurs 11 times. Don't miss the irony here. Don't miss Nebuchadnezzar's foolishness, because despite his reaction in hearing the interpretation of the dream, truly your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries, and even though he knew that Daniel said that his dream is sure, 
The interpretation is sure. Even so, he attempts to reverse reverse the dream. He decides that he is the master of his own fate, captain of his own soul, and he tries to make his own destiny. And so he makes a golden statue. From head to toe is gold. Not just the head, but from head to toe. And in a mighty display of Babylonian power, he made this golden image. And I think the purpose is manifold. Um, Primarily, it might have been to honor the Babylonian gods because of all the successful conquests that he has been able to accomplish, conquering Judah, conquering Assyria, and even subjugating Egypt to honor his gods for allowing him success. But I think also it was to elevate the kingdom and by association, not just the kingdom, but himself, to elevate himself. He is, after all, the head of gold. But I think that was mainly, the statue was mainly created, built, to solidify his kingdom. In our text, Daniel 3, there is no date, but extra-biblical sources will tell us that he had to deal with treason. He had to deal with people who were trying to get or usurp his power. And, of course, like any dictator, he would have them executed. And so, to unify his kingdom, he has this dedication ceremony, this dedication of the golden statue to the gods and to himself to unify the Babylonian kingdom. And so, you can see, though we're reading, his arrogance. I conquered you, so you must fall down and worship me and my gods. And so he gathers all the subordinate rulers, the subordinate Babylonian-installed rulers from the Mediterranean Sea to the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea, all the land in between. In modern-day terms, it will be Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, parts of Iran, Egypt, Turkey. It's a lot of the known world at that time. And the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, will say, but adds these words, from India to Ethiopia, all gathered in the plain of Dura, which was a flat land. And in this plain, there was a golden statue, 10 stories high. A gas station is about 15 feet high, so six gas stations stacked on top. Imagine how high it is. You can see it from miles around. And you can imagine in the Middle East, where when it's not a cloudy day, the sun rays just beating down and reflecting off this golden image. It would have been quite a sight. It really would have been astonishing. But in case you weren't paying attention, in case you were blindly, unconsciously following the herd, the herald proclaims, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, all you subjects of Babylon, that when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, every kind of music, 
you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And as seemingly successful, the whole world, verse 7 says, all peoples, nations, and languages fell down and bowed. But Nebuchadnezzar may have been a little bit careless. There are some who are very keen of people's attendance. It says in verse 8, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And they say in verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve you or your gods. They don't worship the golden image that you have set up. And in a very sly, cunning way, they are indirectly blaming Nebuchadnezzar for this careless oversight. In Daniel 2, a dream may have troubled Nebuchadnezzar, but now his image, his reputation, his status is at stake. He has all these subjects gathered before him. How could he let such a thing happen? And so these Chaldeans, who were spared because of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's interpretation of the dream, they were spared. Their lives were saved, if you will. Instead of being grateful, they become jealous. And they accuse the three indirectly accusing Nebuchadnezzar as well. And this provokes Nebuchadnezzar to fury and rage. If in Daniel 2 he was angry because his magicians couldn't interpret the dream, then here in Daniel 3 he's probably frothing at the mouth. And so it reveals his heart. It reveals his proud and arrogant heart. How could he look weak in front of his subjects? How could these court officials whom I've appointed do such a thing against me? And so the three, they were called before Nebuchadnezzar. And graciously, Nebuchadnezzar extends a second chance. There's a true Shadrach, royal great scribe, Meshach, guest of king, Abednego, servant of Nebo, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fire furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You've probably noticed that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego is repeated several times throughout the chapter. And I think it's trying to draw to our attention that there is a very heavy Babylonian influence. Their names were changed, and they were re-educated in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And they were promoted in that governmental structure. But even still, even though their names may have changed or they may have been brought up in the Babylonian education or promoted within the structure, even still, their identity, their core identity was not changed. Because though they are in exile, though it seems as if God is far away in a distant land, in a distant memory, though the immediate circumstances seems 
Nebuchadnezzar favored you. Who is like Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar helped you. Their names, after all, is still Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. God has favored. Who is what God is? Yahweh has helped. They are sons of Judah. Praise. And so they abstain from the king's idolatrous food from a young age. And even while they were just instituted into the royal council, the royal intelligence council, they prayed to God, not searching the Babylonian scriptures or Babylonian books, but they prayed to the Almighty God. And even here, in the plain of Dura, they were met with a seemingly new challenge, a new dilemma. The stakes are much higher. They're not just about to lose their positions and status, but yet again, their lives. There's a lot at stake here. The temptation might be to maybe reason and rationalize. Maybe if I do bow down, it's not a big deal. Everyone else is doing it. Maybe they can find some practicality behind, yes, bowing down now, but later, later we'll... we'll... They don't give in. In reality, it's actually the same dilemma all over again. There may be more at stake. They might be in a higher position in life, but what does it matter if you were to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? Easy to say. Hard to do. Where does their their confidence come from? Where indeed is the source of their confidence? I can say with certainty that it's not by sight. It's not by sight. Because despite Israel seeing Egypt, the mighty kingdom of Egypt brought to its knees, being delivered through the Red Sea, which was parted, carried on eagles' wings, as it were, and seeing and hearing the Lord descending as a mighty fire with peals of thunder on Mount Sinai, when Moses delayed for 40 days and 40 nights, they say to Aaron, Up! Make us gods who will, who will go before us. And so Aaron, what does he do? He takes the gold, the very gold that God gave to them by the hands of the Egyptians. He takes that gold and creates a golden calf. And in Exodus we read, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Forty days, forty nights, too long. It was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. It was too much to bear. Their circumstances, it was too much. So where does confidence come from? Despite seeing all this, if they, if they don't believe, where does this confidence come from? It's by faith. By faith. Despite circumstances, God promised to Abraham, at 75 years old, to bless him. I will make you a great nation. All the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. And despite his circumstances, being childless for 25 years, when he finally had a child, by faith Abraham obeyed, offering up his only son Isaac. And the angel of the Lord swore 
I will surely bless you and your seed, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. Despite circumstances, God promised to Israel, his people, to deliver them from the hand of Egypt. Despite circumstances, being a runaway from Egypt, Moses, by faith, trusted the angel of the Lord appearing in a flame, a flame in a bush, who said, I will send you to Pharaoh and you will bring out my people. Despite their circumstances, God promised to Joshua that he will be with him just as he was with Moses. Despite circumstances of being nomads, not belonging to a land, by faith, Joshua led the people to the walled city of Jericho, trusting that the commander of the Lord, the commander of the army of the Lord, is in charge. Despite circumstances, God promised to tribal Israel, I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. I am the Lord your God. You shall fear no other gods. Despite circumstances, the Midianites caused the Israelites to run away and live in caves, live in dens. But by faith, Gideon conquered all the Midianites, trusting that the angel of the Lord's word is true. The Lord is with you. Despite circumstances, kings of Israel worshiping other gods and the Israelites following the kings of Israel and worshiping Baal and all these other gods. By faith, Elijah rebuked the kings and the peoples, knowing that the angel of the Lord is with him. Despite appearances, despite circumstances, being oppressed by the king of Assyria, by faith, Hezekiah prayed that the powerful Assyrian king who mocked God, saying, no God can deliver you out of my hands. Hezekiah prayed, and the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrians, not by human hands. And much more can be said. There are those who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. You see, despite appearances, despite circumstances, as terrifying as the image might have been, as blazing as the furnace might have been, by faith, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah trusted in the Lord God regardless of the outcome. And so when Nebuchadnezzar says, who is the God who shall deliver you out of my hands? They say, God whom we serve 
is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, their confidence is not in themselves. Their confidence is in the Lord. We've read, I am the Lord, Yahweh, from everlasting to everlasting. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And because this is true, because I am your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Whether God would rescue them, that's not the main point. It's actually irrelevant whether God would rescue them. It's that God is God. So they resolved, we'll obey God and not men. And so Nebuchadnezzar, when he was faced with a loss of face, loss of reputation, he demonstrates irrational anger and unjust power. Hananiah, when faced with the threat of loss of their lives, they demonstrate God's sovereignty. God is God. He is the maker. He is the creator. He is the one who created them. And they cling to that fact by faith. So when the irresistible force meets these immovable objects, Nebuchadnezzar frolls at the mouth and he orders the furnace seven times hotter and bound their throne into the fiery furnace like lawbreakers. But in their midst, there's one, verse 25, that says, is like a son of the gods. In verse 28, an angel is with them. Who is this son? Who is this angel? In the Old Testament, angels are mentioned throughout but there is the angel of the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord, the angel speaks, he speaks as if he is the Lord, as in the burning bush. On their side of the cross, on Calvary, is the pre-incarnate Son of God. On our side of the cross is the incarnate Son, Jesus himself. In a shadowy way, the same angel, the same angel who appeared to Abraham is the same Jesus, the seed, the true Isaac who obeyed fully, offering himself up. The same angel who appeared to Moses is the same Jesus, the great I am in the flesh. The same angel who appeared to Joshua to tear down the walls of Jericho as the same Jesus who tears down the walls of our hearts to take the rightful place as king over our lives. The same angel who was with Gideon as the same Jesus through whom we are more than conquerors. The same angel who slew the Assyrian army when Hezekiah prayed as the same Jesus who upholds the universe by his power, by the power of his word. 
And the same angel who appeared to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah when they were thrown into the furnace is the same Jesus who stands in front of us to completely satisfy the fiery, consuming, all-consuming judgment of God. You see, and this is the difference between Christianity and all other religions. In other religions, you must obey, you must appease, you must climb the ladder, you must defeat your own heart. You must defeat those around you. And having done all this, we will weigh you and find whether or not you are worthy. But Christianity, rather, is because I am the Lord your God, because I have delivered you out of Egypt, therefore, you shall have no other gods before you. You see, it's because God says it is. Because God says, let there be light, there is light. Because Jesus says, Talitha kum, that the girl rises. And it's because God says, I delivered you, I'm the Lord, that we are delivered, and he is the Lord. And it's because Jesus suffered that I can suffer. He must suffer, actually. Other religions is strange for a God to suffer, but Jesus, he must suffer. So much so that in Matthew 16, when Jesus told his disciples plainly, it's necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, suffer many terrible things from the religious authorities, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But what does Jesus say? He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. It was God's eternal purpose that Jesus should suffer. It was necessary. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he agonized over what he should suffer. Jesus says, my, so- my soul is sorrowful, very exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, in one of his sermons said this, The sorrow and distress which his soul had, had then suffered arose from that lively, full, immediate view which he had of the cup of wrath, that dreadful cup, vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness, this terrible sight as it overwhelmed him. You see, it was the furnace of God's holy and just wrath. But he who for the joy set before him said, Not my will, but yours be done. And so he endured the cross, despising the shame, because he saw us. He saw you in the city of destruction. And so he ransoms us to bring us home to the celestial city. You see, God doesn't save from a distance. There's no time mentioned here in the text again, but if I were to surmise, given the context and given the Septuagint, 
It's right around the time when the first temple was destroyed. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in his arrogance, after destroying the temple, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It foreshadows the destruction of the temple, which John writes about. And the word became flesh and tabernacled, templed, dwelt among us. This God, our God, the true temple, the true tabernacle, was willing to bear the full weight of God's just wrath by being in the fire. It's hotter than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. It's God's cup of wrath. And on the cross, he satisfied God's just anger and said, it is finished. And on the third day, he rose again, and in power he was raised, such that all authority has been given, given to him. And he will come again. And on that day, with a mighty voice, we will hear, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And on that day, a new song will be sung. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, nation, and you have made them a kingdom, and they shall reign on earth. And by faith, we look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, laying aside every hindrance, running the race. At times, we might be overstretched. At times, it is burdensome. Sometimes we feel overworked, overwhelmed, overpowered, overthrown. We will be tempted to either despair. Does God exist? Does He even care? Or we might be tempted to become callous. God doesn't care. Why should I care? But just as gold is refined by fire, God doesn't allow it for no reason. There is a reason. Each gush of wind stokes the fire hotter and stronger. And the intensity of life, with each gush of new trying circumstances, it certainly does feel like too much sometimes. And we might be tempted to become like Nebuchadnezzar, rage against the world, rage against God. Or like the crowd, just be still, go along, play along, keep your beliefs private on Sundays, on Sundays only. Or we might feel bitter. I've served God all these years. What do I get? Some of us are in the furnace even now. But don't lose heart. Just as Jesus, the Son par excellence, learned obedience through suffering, us as well, we as well, as sons and daughters, were called to learn obedience through suffering. Because we're God's children. And if children, then heirs. And if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, then we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified with him. You see, Nebuchadnezzar demanded obedience, and yet he couldn't even protect his henchmen. His henchmen was burned up. Our politicians, 
our bosses, our careers, our reputations, our financial accounts. None of it can protect us. It can't protect us. And not even our loved ones can protect us. There's only one who can undeniably, undoubtedly, definitively protect us. And we may not see him now, but he sees us. To Nebuchadnezzar, from a distance, it looks like the Son of God, sons of the gods. It looks like an angel. But to Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah, to saints throughout the world, throughout time, and to us, is God with us. Emmanuel, the Son of the true and living God. Not protection from the fire, but protection through and in the midst of fire. No other God is able to save in this way. Christians will suffer. It's been so from the very beginning. The prophets of old, and even right after the resurrection of Jesus, Stephen was stoned. And we might be tempted to say, what harm is there in bowing down and saying, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, or Caesar, Caesar is Lord. Have some decency, have some respect for yourself, save your lives. And such was the case for Polycarp a disciple of Apostle John. And when met with such a circumstance, Polycarp, said, Polycarp says, for 86 years I have served him, and he has never done, me, never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And Perpetua from North Africa, a mom who had just given birth, her father, Perpetuous father pleaded, Be merciful to us, daughter, and live with us. Renounce your faith. And she replied, Be gone from me, enemies of God, for I know you not. She'd rather be a spectacle in Roman Colosseum than forsake her Savior. And there are countless others, the prophets, the apostles, the reformers, whether foreign or here at home, we hear all throughout history the words, the words of Job echoed, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. In the Westminster Abbey, there are ten statues of 20th century Christians who lost their lives to the testimony of Jesus. And one such of the ten is Mansh Mansamola. And she was uh, born in South Africa in 1913, so more than 100 years ago, roughly 100 years ago. And she heard an Anglican priest preach, and she believed. And she attended baptism class to know more and be baptized. And her parents would not have it. They took her to the local witch doctor, and she was forced to drink remedies to cure of this Christian demon. And to prevent her from going to baptism class, her parents would hide her clothes. And eventually it got so worse, so much worse, that they threatened to beat her. And at 15 years old, 15, 
her own parents took her to a lonely place and killed her. And that site where she was killed turned into a pilgrimage site. And through the years, people would take pilgrimages there to remember the testimony of her faith. And 41 years later after her death, 41 years later, her own mother was baptized. I'm not telling you to be a martyr, but the word martyr comes from the word martyrion, which is testimony. Testimony. It doesn't matter whether we're a new Christian or a Christian for 86 years. We're all called to be a testimony. Even the founder of our denomination, J. Gresham Machen, says, the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust in Him. The greater our progress in theology, the greater our progress in theology. The simpler and more childlike will be our faith. More childlike. So whether we're a new Christian or Christian for years, what you suffer, it may be unique, but how you respond must not be unique. It's not to minimize the martyrs of the past. It is a great testimony unto Christ. But we will all suffer. We may not necessarily have to be martyred or killed for our faith, but we will all have to suffer one way or another. And life in general is filled with suffering. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, life is generally filled with a lot of suffering and pain. But how you respond is different. You see, everyone, everyone will face threat of loss, a threat of suffering. And most losses, we're, we can stomach it. Whatever doesn't kill us, right? Can make us stronger, we can stomach it. But some losses will just be too overwhelming. The loss of a dream, the loss of a home, the loss of status, the loss of financial security, or the loss of a loved one, or the biggest loss of all, the loss of life. When faced with such a loss, when in the furnace, it will consume you. It will thoroughly shatter you psychologically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. If you do not know Jesus, it will. If you do not believe in Jesus, please know that by grace, through faith, he wants you to trust in him. Not because he foresaw something in you. Not con conditionally, as if you had to do something first but simply because He loves you. And if you do believe, if you are bowing to something, know that our Father is a caring and loving Father. He disciplines His own children. It's because He loves us, He disciplines us. And in some seasons, He leaves His own children to temptation and corruption to show the deceitfulness of the heart in order to humble us and raise us to a closer and more constant dependence upon Him. So run to Him. Cling to Him. As the Father rejoices over the return of the prodigal Son, run to Him. He waits to rejoice over you.
And if you believe, and if you are in the furnace as we speak, know that he says to you, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's confidence is our confidence. And we will sing this hymn, which I graciously asked Anna to play um, and Tom to include. How firm a foundation. We don't know whether God will supernaturally rescue us from our fiery trials, even our confession that says God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet he is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. He may or he may not. The fire indeed had no power over the three. It says their hairs weren't singed, their cloaks weren't burned, and not even the smell of fire was on them. And indeed, even today, throughout the world, we may hear of Christians experiencing miracles. But even if he does not, we have a more sure word. We're going to sing how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. What more can be said than to you he has said? The soul that on Jesus had leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell shall endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. There are fiery trials. Some of us are in it now. But truly, there's no other God who saves in this way fellowship with the sun in the furnace, knowing that one day there is prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, Lord God, Yahweh, thank you for sending us your Son, the Son by whom through whom, for whom, you've created all things. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the first and the last. And you are the beginning and the end. Thank you that you see us in the furnace. Thank you for being with us in the furnace. Thank you for taking the full cup of God's wrath so that you might ransom us to take us out from the city of destruction, that we might live in the heavenly, celestial city, in the new Jerusalem. Help us, O oh Lord, some of us who doubt, some of us may doubt, help us to see the immensity and the vastness of Christ's love for us, and there are some of us who are overwhelmed with sorrow, with loneliness, with trouble, with sickness, with ailments. Thank you for your sure word that by faith 
You are indeed Emmanuel, God with us. There is no other God who saves in this way. Thank you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.